0: Welcome to the local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Thursday, May twentieth. Today, back in the day, on May twentieth, nineteen fifty-six, the SPNS steam locomotive number seven hundred had its last official run. The train's farewell ride attracted one thousand three hundred seventy-five passengers who rode from Portland, Wishram. Washington, and back. It was placed on the scrap line after that, but didn't stay there long. In 1958, the SPNS 700 was donated to the city of Portland and remained on display in Oaks Amusement Park in Selwood for nearly 30 years. But in the late 80s, it was restored to operating condition. Then, in 2006, it was declared a National Historic Place. To this day, it remains the oldest and only surviving steam locomotive of its class and can be viewed on display in the Oregon Rail Heritage Center. Today, back in the day on May 20th, 1570, Abraham Ortelius printed what is considered the first modern atlas, called The Theatre of the Orb of the World. It is often marked as the beginning of the golden age of Netherlandish cartography. The rudimentary atlas consisted of 53 individual maps, all of the same size and style, and arranged by continent region, and state. It was somewhat groundbreaking for the time, as most maps at the time were custom-made for individual buyers. However, this atlas was the first that all of Western Europe's cartographic knowledge was compiled into a single source. Today, back in the day on May 20, 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed the Homestead Act into law. Passed during the Civil War, its aim was to encourage Union sympathizers to settle lands out west. In exchange for a modest fee, citizens were given 160 acres of land to be cultivated and improved. And, after five years, they were given the title. However, in practice, it was not so successful. Most laborers and farmers could not afford to build a farm or raise livestock. And, of course that does not begin to take into account the Native Americans in these lands, displaced by incoming homesteaders. On today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Raven Drake and Emily Green from Street Roots about the newspaper's current edition titled Trans is Beautiful. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Portland released new guidelines for when contractors can disperse homeless camps. Toward the beginning of the pandemic, the CDC advised cities against displacing houseless people from encampments. This was due to concerns of increasing the transmission of COVID-19 within vulnerable populations. But now, Portland has updated its rules. A memo released yesterday by Portland's Homelessness and Urban Camping Impact Reduction Program cites a, quote, more assertive approach. One eviction notice must be given 48 hours before city contractors begin to disperse people living at a campsite. Camps can be dispersed for several reasons. That includes if there is a fire risk, if camps are blocking ADA access, or if there is a dangerous presence of biohazardous materials. As the Portland Mercury reported, people living at the Laurelhurst camp have asked for increased trash pickup from the city. However, they have not been provided with the resources they need, and the presence of trash is used to rationalize sweeps. A local group aligned with Stop the Sweeps Coalition released a statement about the new rules saying, quote, this plan hurts everyone. A statement on social media from a local resource distribution mutual aid group, The People's Store, reads, quote, the city of Portland continues to ignore research on housing first models, their own low success rates, and Boise v. Martin in order to waste taxpayer money perpetuating acts of violence against its own residents. They add, quote, survival should be free. And now your daily dose of data. According to the OHA, at least 70 percent of Oregon's eligible population must receive at least one dose of the vaccine in order to more fully reopen business activity. The eligible population includes all adults 18 and older. As of yesterday, 62 percent of the eligible population had received at least one dose. Those between the ages of 65 and 80 years have the highest vaccination rates in Oregon. As a point of comparison, 38% of 16 to 19 year olds have been vaccinated. Five more counties will move down to the low risk level this Friday. Those counties are Benton, Deschutes, Hood River, Lincoln, and Washington. Oregonians must start looking for a job in order to continue receiving unemployment benefits. Federal law does require that individuals be actively searching for employment in order to receive benefits, but the U.S. Congress granted states the option of waiving that requirement during the pandemic, which Oregon did. Yesterday, Oregon Employment Department officials said that the job search requirement will be phased back in over the next two months. First, those receiving benefits must register with the Employment Department's Skills Matching Program. The requirement is, in part, an effort to address what some are calling a labor shortage. It also shows that the Employment Department now has the capacity to enforce this rule and to assist workers in job searching, after a year of focusing on record numbers of claims. The HOPE Amendment is approved in Oregon's Legislature on its way to ballots next year. On Wednesday, the Oregon State House of Representatives passed Senate Joint Resolution 12. The resolution marks the eighth time in 16 years that a bill for health care rights has been presented to lawmakers in Salem. The amendment, which will be on ballots next November, will ask Oregon voters to change the state constitution to make health care a fundamental right. The amendment also states that the obligation for health care must be balanced against the public interest in funding public schools and other essential public services. State Senator Michael Dembro, a Democrat from Portland, called the initiative a set of values and a call to action meant to lay the groundwork for conversation and change, as, a, as opposed to a specific proposal. Republican lawmakers were hesitant to back the resolution, fearing that it would put the state on the hook for billions of dollars in health care spending that it could not afford. According to the Oregon Health Authority, 94% of Oregonians had health care coverage in 2019. Lawmakers and supporters of the resolution have been meeting in a task force to extend health care universally. Two more Oregonians who stormed the United States Capitol in January will be released from pretrial custody. 40-year-old Richard Harris and 21-year-old Jonathan Peter Klein, a self-proclaimed Proud Boy, were granted release by separate judges on Wednesday. Harris was let out on bond to the custody of his father's home yesterday, and Klein is set to be released today. Along with his brother, Matthew, who was released last week, Klein was indicted on six charges, including conspiracy to destruction of government property, entering a restricted building and obstruction of law enforcement during a civil disorder. The brother's release is contingent on home detention and no use of social media. The two had frequently taken part in Proud Boys' events in Oregon, which culminated in misdemeanor charges for Matthew for possession of loaded firearms at a rally in Portland on September 26, 2020. According to prosecutors, the Klein brothers purchased airline tickets on December 29, 2020 using cash and flew from Portland to Pennsylvania on January 4 before traveling to Washington, D.C. the following day. They helped members of the Trump supporting mob climb walls to gain access to the U.S. Capitol on January 6th before entering themselves. Separately, Harris has been charged by federal prosecutors with five counts. Using his father's home as collateral, Harris was released on $250,000. Harris has also been charged with misdemeanor harassment for shoving a journalist with the Salem Statesman Journal during an anti-lockdown protest at the Oregon Capitol. That incident was caught on video. Finally, some good news. The Morrison Bridge lights are back on for the first time in two years. The lights, which were first installed in 2009, were shut off in 2019 for repairs and upgrade. The Willamette Light Brigade announced on Tuesday that the upgrades had been completed with old bulbs replaced by LED lights that are both more energy efficient And brighter. Anyone can now apply to book a color scheme for the bridge. Costs range from $150 per day up to $1,100 for two weeks. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, Andy Lindbergh speaks with Raven Drake and Emily Green from Street Roots about the newspaper's current edition titled Trans is Beautiful.
1: The title of this week's Street Roots is Bold and Simple. Trans is beautiful. It's an affirmation for a vulnerable community that has long fought for the rights and respect they deserve. Joining us now to talk about trans rights, especially for the transgender houseless community, are Raven Drake and Emily Green from Street Roots. Good morning.
2: Good morning. morning.
1: Uh, What were some of the guiding principles when you put together this issue?
2: You know, in the past two years, we've seen an increase in violence against transgender people and especially black trans women in this country. Um, In the first 19 weeks of this year, we've already seen 25 killings of transgender and gender nonconforming people in the United States and Puerto Rico. And that's a rate of more than one person killed each week. Hmm. And we're on track to beat last year's record of 44 killings. And additionally, while the Biden administration is working to reverse Trump era policies that discriminate against this community, on the state level, we've seen more specifically anti-transgender bills introduced in the first quarter of this year than any other year in history. There are more than 80, that's eight zero, bills that target trans youth specifically. These are bills to prevent youths from playing sports to prevent them from seeking hormone therapy or surgery, when Bill even calls these procedures child abuse, Hmm. and bills to keep trans kids out of the bathrooms that align with their gender identity. So while Oregon may not be um, passing any of these bills at these times, this does have a profound impact on our community. In putting together this issue, we worked with and interviewed transgender people living in Portland and many moved here from other parts of the country where this stuff is happening. So folks are knocking on, on our door, and we need to be ready to accept them, to offer them opportunities to thrive, and especially to help heal their trauma. Um, so we wanted to put together this issue to highlight some of these things. Um, and to, in order to really be able to help, we have to understand how to be better allies. We have to talk about the violence that transgender people are facing, and we have to acknowledge our own shortcomings. Um, Oregon is, has the highest rate of LGBTQ plus people in the nation, but it also has one of the highest rates of hate incidents reported um, that involved the person's gender identity or sexual orientation. And even here in Portland, transgender people face many additional barriers to finding housing and employment. We see this every day at street Roots. Out of 183 active vendors who sell the paper each week, at least eight um, self-identify as transgender. And in addition to those eight, we have um, three transgender vendors who we were, had the privilege of bringing on to our staff this past year. Um, and one of those people is on this call with me, Raven Drake, is our vendor program manager, and she actually inspired this edition of the newspaper by writing about her experience at a recent March.
1: That's great. Raven, can can you tell us a little bit about your journey with Street Roots?
3: Yeah, um, I I came into Street Roots. Um, Tina, who Emily mentioned, has been a long-term friend of mine. I've known her since before we both transitioned for almost 24 years. And so I, I was at a very dark point in my life, uh, which I allude to in the story, and I actually came... Through Portland as I passed through on my way to the ocean because I had every intention of ending my life of being done with this. And the moment I walked in the street route, the love around here, the sense of family and, and community is infectious. And it just latched on to me. And I couldn't bear to take myself away from it. I wanted to see what this was all about. And and so doing, you know, it effectively saved my life and gave me a life.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and that's, that's so affirming to hear. You know, part of, of gender activism is about fighting for trans rights and against violence, but another part is about fostering community and trans joy. Uh, how, mm-hmm. how do you center joy in your activism and work?
3: For me, it took a long time to figure out what joy even meant. You know, mm-hmm. I had a long road to get here that was not pretty. And um, it took me many months. But finally, joy for me became seeing the smile and peaceful faces when we when we're together um, uh, to, to draw, to paint, to write about these things and bring awareness to them brings me a lot of joy and to do outreach to that unhoused community and people in the trans community who are on the house brings me a lot of joy. And so these things fill my life full of so much joy.
1: That's great. So, you know, we, we, we talk about the idea of allyship and that allyship is a topic that brings up complicated feelings because it often just means paying lip service Um, How can our cisgender listeners work to be strong, authentic allies to trans people in their lives?
3: That's great. Um, First, they can listen. That is the biggest thing that I think doesn't happen is, um, you know, reportedly across this country, almost 90 percent of individuals claim that they have never met a trans person, or at least don't know that they have met one. So, communication acknowledge that person um, be there for them you know respect their pronouns and support them in their in their choice even if you don't understand it these are the hallmarks of a great ally
1: hmm. we're you know, we go, go ahead Emily I
2: in we asked a lot of people that we interviewed for this issue that question and Another thing that came up a lot, and especially from uh, another uh, woman named Raven, who Mm. we profiled in this issue, Raven Elaine, who is a black trans woman in Portland, who is also an activist, uh, who works very hard to feed people experiencing homelessness through her organization, Food for the Community. one thing that she emphasized and others emphasized is wanting to be seen not as a trans Person or a trans woman, but as the multifaceted people that they are.
1: Mm. Uh, There's so is... much
2: talent in this community, and I do want to point out that um, Raven, who is on the call with us, actually did the artwork for the cover of this uh, week's edition as well.
1: Well, it's it's such a a a, a, a complex and 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 deep expression, uh, this, this episode, or this, this week's, uh, Street Roots. And, um, uh, this is Andy and Julia. We're, we're speaking with Emily Green and Raven Drake about, uh, Street Roots. Um, so there's a, well, for our listeners at home, can you explain the link between being transgender and being vulnerable to homelessness?
3: Yeah, that's great. Oh, so many of the people we find um, who are in who are transgender or homeless, the common narrative that we have is families who don't understand and, and push us away, uh, loss of job because of our transition, loss of housing in some cases, and so those are the three main reasons why people end up on the street. And for a lot of us. It's not until we get here to the street that we meet someone else in our community and those thoughts of are we different go away and we start to realize that there can be life.
1: That's interesting. Uh, What what are some of the unique needs that homeless trans people have that need to be addressed?
3: Well, thankfully here in Oregon, we do really well with making sure we provide health care for people through OHP and and everything. So that really helps most of the trans people living on the street out here. But across the nation, trans people are historically barred or so many barriers are put before them for uh, medical uh, treatment, for mental health services because of being trans, the way they're discriminated. That for many people, um, you know, in Ohio, it's, it's they, two years ago when they did a study on it, one in 27 trans people who came out in Ohio will actually ever be able to transition there.
1: Hmm. So, how can advocates work uh, to make the streets, uh, transitional spaces, uh, temporary housing more safe for transgender individuals?
3: Well, it comes back to talking to people, of getting informed, actually listening to those trans people and the issues they're having, and deciding to be a, an active ally who supports them and shows up for them. Um, those are the most pertinent ways to kind of really start bringing them to the forefront and, and centering their voices in that conversation and giving them that respect and that space.
1: So we've, we've only have about a minute uh, left, but, but Raven, um, can you tell us a little bit about your work with greater good Northwest?
3: Yeah, greater good Northwest and us, um, greater good Northwest put in a bid, uh, for one of the alternative shelters here in Portland, and with their work of set, recentering their organization to focus on BIPOC by- and LGBTQI communities, um, Ebony Brown, who's their executive director and a good friend of mine, have had me and her have had long discussions about this dream that, teen, uh, that Tina and myself and many other trans people have held here of finally building a permanent, sweepless village that. Yeah, you know, a permanent village here in, in Portland that is for the trans and non-binary communities so that we can live together, we can support each other and have that community. Um, and so, yeah, we're looking forward to hearing back from the city on whether or not our, we've been approved and hopefully moving forward on that this year.
1: That's exciting. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for that work. And thank you both for the work that you put into uh, this week's uh, Street Roots Um, it's available now from vendors?
2: Yep. It hit the streets this morning and you can get it from any of your favorite vendors around Portland.
1: All right. Well, we've been speaking with uh, ambassador program manager for street roots, Raven Drake and managing editor, Emily green. Thank you both so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. You got it. Uh, So, Uh, There was mention of suicide in that interview. Uh, If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, you can call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255.
0: Thanks to Raven and Emily for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. And as always... Thank you, democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-ray.